court. All right, we're here. I feel like there's some pressure on Saturday night. It's like the, you know, gotta wrap everything up. Uh, but it's been such a great weekend already. There's not really anything to wrap up. We can go home now and uh, we would have spent a weekend in the presence of God, a weekend being knit together in love by the Holy Spirit. Um, but I have a slot, so I'm going to say some things. So open your Bibles. Would you like me to tell you where? Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, it's a stink bug. All creatures, right? All creatures, great and small. Stink bug is groaning for the manifestation of the sins of God, right? The angel of the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What a great commendation. I would love to hear that said of my life. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we... Uh, just open our hearts to you. We're already in your presence. We ask that you'd open your word to us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. He's coming up the court. He needs to get closer. Look at this. <laughs> they fly? <Yes. laughs> you learn something new every day. I've never seen those things fly. Wow. What a time to live. What time to be alive. Well, when Kelly first shared uh, his idea with the pastors, what he was thinking about sharing at the retreat, which was actually about a month and a half ago, there is some planning that goes into these things, believe it or not. Uh, I, I thought at first that our teachings would complement uh, each other really well, um, but I was not prepared to hear what I heard last night. I mean, it is right on where my heart is uh, coming into this weekend. 
And so I don't think it's just going to be a nice, neat compliment. I think the, that God has a word to share with us, and he's been sharing it, and this is going to be part of it, all right? There's a clear word over this weekend for us as a community. Uh, a long time ago, I heard Billy talk about, this was when I probably was first regularly coming to the church, and they were in like a three-year study of First Corinthians. Do you remember the three-year study? I don't know if it was three years, but it was a long time. Uh, close to a year. But he said he didn't like when people would compare LCF, which was the only CF church at that time, to the church at Ephesus because he was convinced that we were more like Corinth. Um, there were some serious, I think there was some serious conflict happening at that time. And it was a lot, a lot more of a hodgepodge of personalities and theologies. Um, and so it was kind of a big <laughs> melting pot. And so he was preaching to Corinthians. And that kind of got lodged in my mind, and it made me sort of allergic to uh, the Ephesian comparison. Um, but I'm here to say that this is a valid and worthwhile study for us tonight. We're going to be talking about the, the church at Ephesus, uh, at least for this weekend. If we're ultimately Corinthians, so be it. But this weekend, we're Ephesians. All right, tonight, we're Ephesians. I want to walk through a brief history of the, Ephes of the Ephesian church. Uh, in Acts. It starts in Acts 18. You can go there, and I'll give you some details on Ephesus as you're going there. Near the end of his second missionary tour, Paul came to a place called Corinth, and he met a couple of disciples named Priscilla and Aquila. Ephesus is a major city of the ancient world. Um, after Rome and Alexandria, I think it might be the third largest of the ancient world of that area. It's about 250,000 people. It's about Lexington sized. All right, there's one comparison. It was wealthy. It was a, a commercial hub. I think they had an Amazon warehouse <laughs> next to a big UPS warehouse. Uh, no, but it was a seaport, which is essentially the same thing. You know, stuff has to go somewhere and from somewhere, and, and Ephesus was that place a lot of times. It was a major cultural center, religious center. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. It was the temple to Artemis. So Paul gets to Corinth. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, and they join him. He, he brings them onto his traveling team. And they travel with him to Ephesus, and he's making his way eventually back to Antioch towards the end of his journey. So he's heading back to uh, the motherland. He's going to end up in Jerusalem and Antioch to touch base with everybody there before setting off again on what's called his third missionary journey. It's more of a third phase. It was multiple journeys. But on his way, he goes through Ephesus, you know, like Delta, if you're flying Delta, you go through Atlanta. You just end up there. It's a hub. And he goes through Ephesus and he realizes that there's work to do. All right? Uh, we're in Acts 18. Uh, verse 20. Sorry, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria... And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. 
I need to say this. I told dad on the way back from Mexico. He got his haircut in Mexico by Pedro's grandson, uh, little Obed, who's opening up a barber shop right there in front of uh, Pedro's house. And I said, you know, dad, even uh, Paul got his haircut on his missionary journeys. So you're in good company. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. That's Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. It's the first time Paul came to Ephesus. And he left two of his star disciples there. And he had a sense that God was up to something in Ephesus. And he said, I need to come back here. And so he, books, he bookmarks Ephesus. He goes back to Caesarea. It says he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, the church that was probably at Jerusalem. He went and said hi to the church in Jerusalem. Then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, meanwhile, it goes, the story goes back to Ephesus, which indicates to us that uh, Ephesus is going to become a central city here in the story. So while Paul's away, Luke tells us of some of the other things that were happening in Ephesus. A guy named Apollos shows up, and he is full of the word of God. He's able to, uh, he's able to preach convincingly from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. But he, he doesn't fully understand the way. And so Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos, and it says that they explain to him the way of God more accurately. And then uh, Apollos wants to go over to Corinth. There has been some activity happening in Corinth. That's when Apollos goes to Corinth. You know, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when uh, Paul is getting on to, to the Corinthians for taking sides between him and, and, and Paul, uh, between him and Apollos, it's because Apollos had gone on to, uh, to Corinth and preached there. And he's, that's when Paul says, basically, I don't care who's preaching to you. They're preaching Jesus. We're, we're on the same team. It says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He was a gifted man. So while Apollos is away, we're in chapter 19, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And these were probably not Christians. They were disciples. They were disciples of John, of John's teaching, who was still an Old Testament prophet type. And there was a school of of disciples that followed the teachings of John. And Paul happens upon a few of these disciples. And he says, and this was sort of the, um, what's the word? This, this was sort of the, the litmus test that he had for these, what kind of disciples are you? What kind of students are you? He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, say what? The What? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Or it may mean, it, this may mean that they had not even heard that the Spirit was at work as it was foretold. And it was now at work as it had been foretold in the Old Testament. And he said, into what were you baptized? What are you a part of? And they said, John's baptism. And he said, oh, great. You're almost there. <laughs> they said, 
Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They have their own little mini Pentecost right there. There were 12 men in all. It's a cool number. Reminds me of something. There were 12 men in all. There were 12 of these disciples who had been discipled by John's teachings, John the Baptist's teachings, and were ready to receive. And then they did receive, and the Holy Spirit came on them. And this kicks off a three-year stint for Paul in Ephesus. That's a pretty long time to stay in one place. But he ends up spending, all in all, about three years in Ephesus during this period, and it really becomes the center of Paul's apostolic ministry and really the center of what, where God was spreading the kingdom. And it becomes this hub right here. These 12 guys in a city of 250,000 in an idolatrous mega... I mean, this would be like Times Square. You know, it just idols everywhere. And these 12 guys get a hold of the Holy Spirit... And Paul stays there to teach them. And they get kicked out of the synagogue. So they go find another place. I think it was on uh, Wilmore Road in the Hall of Tyrannus. Um, it's kind of a second class place, you know. But the, it, was, it was good enough space to, to do the teaching. So they stayed there. Reasoning daily in the Hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. Now, listen to this. Sometimes the scriptures move fast. You got to slow down. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul's discipling 12 guys. He's laid his hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. And then they, end, they start class. And somehow, out of those two years of teaching, the whole area hears the word of the Lord. Both Jews and Greeks. And that's when the church at Ephesus is born. That's where the church of Ephesus came from. God was up to something. The people of God got a sense of it. Came back there. Paul said, there's, there's work here. I'm going to go back to Ephesus. And he, I don't know how he found these disciples. right? But God has a way of bringing people into your path. We were, when we were down in Mexico, this just kept happening. We didn't really have a clear agenda. We were going down there to make connections. We prayed the first day that God would make connections for us. And we made some great connections. It was awesome. Um, well, I'd love to sit down with, with any of you who want to hear more about the trip. Connections were made. And Revelation has told us that this is 30 or 40 years later, roughly, maybe 20 or 30 years. Nobody really knows for sure. They said they've abandoned their first love. Well, here's where their first love was born. When Paul laid his hands on 12 guys and they were full of the Holy Spirit. And for two years, they could not get enough teaching. And for two years, they would not shut up about what they were learning. And the whole area heard the word of the Lord. Some, a couple of great stories that come after this. Uh, 
everyone gets really excited about what God is doing and they start burning their books. They start burning their magic books. There was a Harry Potter bonfire in the middle of the city. But if we're, if we're wondering, what was the first love? If we're looking at scripture, what did they abandon? This is where we look. We see a group of 12 eager disciples receiving the Holy Spirit. That's the birth of the church. We see a community of people growing through a hunger for teaching about Jesus. So much so that they realize that the way of life that they are following is wrong. And that they are people of unclean lips and they dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And they start opting out in a radical way of the prevailing Ephesian lifestyle. And they opt out so much so that it affects the local economy and starts riots because people are in love with Jesus. So that's a great story. We don't have time to walk through it. It's a great story. Go read it. Paul eventually has to move on from Ephesus. He wants to get back to Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost, and he goes to a couple other places, and he's passing back. He can't go all the way into Ephesus, but he's passing back near Ephesus, and he says, you know, I, need, I really want to talk to the elders there one last time. This might be the last time I'm here in this area Paul had been sensing some stirrings of the Spirit that he was kind of on his final, final leg of his journey, at least as a, as a free man. And in chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Somewhere during that time he had left Timothy in Ephesus, and, and Timothy had, had, he said, appointed elders had waded through and, and become a judge of, of character and put men of character in place. And Paul calls some of these men to come meet him. When he came to them, he said to them, and it's a beautiful, beautiful address. And again, I would love to walk through this line by line. But we don't have time. But he's basically given an apology. He says, listen, you guys know my life. You know what I was all about when I was among you. He said, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. And even it, 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 it began to become very dangerous to continue doing what I was doing. But we persisted, didn't we, guys? We stuck with it. Paul says he fought with beasts at Ephesus. It was hard. There was, op there was opposition. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. He says, and I don't know what's going to happen to me after this. The, the Holy Spirit is testifying to my spirit that there's imprisonment ahead. There's more trials ahead. But he, like Jesus, has set his face like a flint to go and embrace those trials. And he says, he's basically handing off 
the spiritual authority that he felt for their lives. He's handing it off to their community. It is now he's entrusting them to God and to one another. He says a great verse in 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Can you honestly say that about your life? Every time I come to this passage, I just have to stop on that verse. It's tangential to the teaching tonight, but listen to that. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he finishes by saying, and he says some great things in here, but then he says, and I don't, guys, I think this is the last time we're going to see each other face to face. He says, I've, I've told you everything I know. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. This is, this is goodbye. This is goodbye in this life. And then he gives him a warning. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Care for the, uh, over the, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Again, got to stop. Do we care for the church of God that he bought with his blood? Do we care for our home fellowship because Jesus bought each life in there with his blood? You know, I get nervous in a, in, a, in a nice vehicle that's not mine. And I'm a little bit scared to drive it. Jesus, with his own blood, has purchased the lives that we care for. And do we seek God when we are, when we are wrestling through how to best love people? And we've all been there. How do we love these people? Do we remember that this person is bought with the blood of Jesus? But here's his warning. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Okay. And we get some we get some insight into their commendation in Revelation. Right. They had stayed alert. Fierce wolves had come in, and they had stayed firm. They, re- they, they, they remembered that warning of Paul, and they remained true. Be alert. And now I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then it says, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. What a beautiful uh, time this, this was. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that he that they would not see his face again. They loved God with a zealous, burning love. Literally burning their books (laughs) out of love for God, of devotion to God. 
they loved each other to the point of tears. And when he had said these things, oh no, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. When I leave the house, a lot of times my boys like to run down the, to the road to the very last point where they know they're allowed to go just to see me off, right? These guys went to the shore to see Paul off. Beautiful. This is the community of God. This is, this is tender-hearted, brotherly love. This isn't obligatory association. They were weeping that they would not see Paul again. Their hearts had been knit together in the gospel of the grace of God. And they were on fire with love for Jesus and for one another. They go back, apparently, and they get to work. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, who was his best man, who he sent to, to help the elders maintain godly leadership in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It's going to get weird in here. There's going to be social imaginaries that rise up and draw people away from pure devotion to Jesus. He says, don't devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. Defend the faith. Cling to love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he says, when you get away from those, that's where all the weirdness comes from. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So they had a love for one another, a love among the pastors and elders that led to tears when parting became necessary. There were doctrinal cautions, but the final image we see of those Ephesian elders was one of deep love for one another. And then the rest is history. We know that Ephesus became a major center for the move of God and became a, a hub in itself. The church of Ephesus became its own type of hub and uh, aided the work and the spread of the kingdom of God in that area. One of the, one of the books that's been very important to us as a community is Ephesians, right? And it's interesting to, with this historical context, to consider some of the things that Paul wrote to the Ephesians during his time of personal ministry with them when he, when he, when he would have to be away for a while. He, he would write a letter to Ephesians, and it became one of the foundational letters in, in the New Testament. One of the finest, I think, explanations of the gospel and its effect in our lives. If you want to go to Ephesians real quick, I want to point out a few things.
maybe of all Paul's letters, this is the most, you could say, uh, I don't know if chiasm is the right word, but it's clearly in two halves. And the end of the first half, beginning of the second half, are the meat, the heart of the book. Right? And so Paul opens up the letter by describing the, the truth of the gospel, explaining it in terms of the Father's love through the Son, by the Spirit. And he says, and I'm praying for you. This is one of a couple of great prayers in, in the book. I'm praying for you that you would have eyes to understand, that you, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to understand this truth. Then he describes the Exodus-shaped salvation that the people of God have undergone. He says, you were foreigners, you were strangers. You were far off, and God has saved you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5, he says, when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, that is, delivered, freed from bondage and raised up with him and seated it with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith this is the gift of God it's not a result of works so that no one may boast we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then after that, he's, it's, it's one long attempt. He says, for this reason, in chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and we don't get to the end of that till the end of chapter 3. We don't get to the this reason until the end of chapter 3. So in a typical Paul fashion, he has to take kind of a, a long way to say what he's going to say. But he eventually makes his way around to the point. In verse 14, he picks back up the for this reason. For this reason, but before that he has to describe the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Earlier, he said that God had a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. And he says that's, that has happened. It was decreed by God before the foundation of the world. It was hinted at in types and shadows until the coming of Jesus. But now it has happened. The fullness of time has come. And all things have been summed up in Jesus. And he says for this reason, because this is what we're preaching... Because this is what has actually happened. Because this is the new reality that all humanity now lives in. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, 
He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. So he prays that. Then he has to pray like a prayer to end the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's the love that like what Kelly was talking about, when God starts something, it's full of power. It is, it is not going to quickly fade. But what God started, what he commenced, what he initiated in Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension, when he did that, the love of God was unleashed on mankind, and something changed in the fabric of creation. Something changed in the DNA of human beings when God did that in Jesus. This is why when Paul baptized those disciples who had heard some things, but then entered into, they had entered into some things, but they hadn't entered into Christ. When they entered into Christ, the Spirit came on them And they became a different kind of human being and did different kinds of things that humans can't normally do. They were filled with the fullness of God. He says the love, the power, the Holy Spirit fills the church. And this is a permanent work. He says he did this and he filled the church with his power so that in every generation... To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. That includes our generation. When Paul's describing what happened in Jesus, the nuclear bomb that went off when Jesus lived and died and arose and ascended, it's the kind of energy that will never die. You know, how long is it going to be before the Chernobyl fallout stops? Long time. I mean, they've got that little dome over it to keep the... To, but it dropped, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Right? It is. And this is way, way beyond that. That's why he closes the letter by saying this. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That means it doesn't decay. Has no half-life. It does not shrink over time. It does not diminish over time. It does not obey the laws of 
physics. It persists. It does not obey the laws of entropy. It's incorruptible. It doesn't die. It has no lifespan. It's eternal. Love incorruptible. It's untainted. It's sincere. It surpasses knowledge. Paul said, we can't really wrap our minds around the love of Christ. That's such a task that Paul has to pray that God would do an impossible thing to help us wrap our minds around it. To help us realize it and live in it. It's the centrality of love. The whole letter of the Ephesians points toward and flows from this middle section to know the love of Christ. Let me explain the gospel so that you could know the love of Christ. It's it's the most powerful thing you could ever imagine. Now live your life in this way because you know the love of Christ, which is the most powerful thing you could ever imagine. And so we come back to Revelation when John, it's the next, perhaps the next generation, generation or two after they received this letter. Where Paul says that the love of Christ was going to be the fuel of every generation to the glory of God. And he has just started it. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And so to the, to the heads of the church in Ephesus, he says, great job. Great job standing firm against the lies of the age. Great job hating what God hates. That's commendable. But the heart of it all was always love. That was the point of everything. And when you abandon love, despite your faithfulness, despite your persistence, despite your endurance, when you abandon love, you risk a loss of identity as a church in the eyes of Jesus. He says, I will remove your lampstand. If you're not on fire, why would I keep you in the lampstand? You're just a blob of wax that can't light. There's something more than John's baptism. There's something more than flee from the wrath to come. There's something more than repent. What were you baptized into? He says. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to the love of Christ. It is the only way that we can receive the love of Christ. 
It doesn't operate on intellectual lines, although you can intellectually contemplate it. It doesn't operate on emotional lines, although you can emotionally feel it. It's a spiritual reality that you have to grasp in the spirit. And you can only grasp it by repenting and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says, they say, we're believers. And he says, do you have the Spirit? God's love for us is an ever-renewable resource. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't rust. It doesn't deplete. It doesn't grow scarce. The love he gives us for him is the same. It's sincere. The love that's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit is sincere. It's undying. It's incorruptible. It's not subject to decay. It surpasses knowledge. The love he gives us for each other is the same way. So I'm not convinced in my spirit that we are in need of a corporate call to repentance and return to our first love. But I'm confident that we can and should hear the strong admonishment here in Revelation. Abandonment of our first love probably would begin with an abandonment of love as a first priority. as an abandonment of the priority of love. Yeah, it's important. We haven't abandoned love. I mean, think about this in in terms of relationship. When you abandon the priority of your relationship with your husband, your relationship with your wife, that's when it starts to to get rough. You don't not love each other anymore. But the relationship isn't what it used to be or could be. It's an issue of priority. And Paul seems pretty certain that love will never, that love can never be deprioritized. Why would it? And why, and, why, and why would anyone ever consider deprioritizing the love of God? Yeah, we got that. All right, let's move on to some more advanced ways of strategizing to reach the lost. I mean, that's like, all right, nuclear power. Okay, good. Let's, uh, let's go light some fires and see if we can keep the lights on. Let's, uh, let's, get, on, let's get on stationary bikes and, and try and generate some, some power. <laughs> let's, uh, we'll come back to that. You know, we talk a lot about this nuclear power thing. Let's go ride some bikes for a while. That's what we do. 
when we abandon the priority of the love of God. And then we wonder why everything has come to a screeching halt. Why am I stuck in a rut? Why is my home group going nowhere? (laughs) Get off your stationary bike. Turn on the power plant. It's the love of Christ. I mean, (laughs) they were fishing all night and they had caught nothing. And Jesus goes, try it again. I mean, that was nothing. That was nothing. Something massive was poking itself into earthly life. And Jesus gave us little glimpses of it. But the church was meant to live that life out and to renew the world by living that life. It's an amazing thing. The church was never meant to cower in a corner and hope They don't find us. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. It's not hyperbole. It's a fact. Abandonment of the priority of love. Not for, not to replace it with sin. Of course not. Just the opposite. To replace the priority of love with patient endurance. Hating the things that God also hates. I think it was a great talk this morning. But we keep coming back to love, don't we? I think it was two great talks this morning. One, to deal with the external world. Another one, to deal with the way that we do ministry and do life and flourish in our home groups. Both of them kept coming back to love. I think God's saying something to us. I don't think we need to repent, but we need to hear the admonishment. We need to hear in Paul's words how much he prioritized love. Patient endurance is one day going to no longer be necessary. The Nicolaitans are long gone. I don't know who that, the same one is today, but we don't know who the Nicolaitans were, and that's probably the point. There's a Nicolaitan in every age. Something God hates and the church should hate too. We're not going to sit around in heaven and talk about the Nicolaitans. We're not going to sit around in heaven and talk about expressive individualism and social imaginaries and Freud. We're going to sit around in heaven and praise the name of Jesus and adore him and love him and love him together. And that's the life we live now. That's eternal life. Faith is great. You need faith. You need faithfulness. It's a key, key virtue of a godly man or woman. Hope. Kelly, we need hope. We need hope in this dark time. But the greatest of these is love. 
The greatest of these is love. We need tongues, but they're going to cease. The greatest of these is love. We need prophecy, but the greatest of these is love. So God started a work in the church by pouring out his Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit contained within that work is a revelation and a nuclear reaction of the love of God in our hearts. That's what happens when you're baptized. That's why Paul has to keep saying, no, 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 it's already happened. The bomb went off. Live like it, right? Don't. Don't get away from that reality. It already happened. Everything necessary has happened. It's not so we're not waiting for it. We're not bemoaning the loss of this golden age. No, it is here and we are living in it. And it's just as available now. The objects in this text are close. They're near. They're at hand. The love of Christ is at hand. Amen. So I... That's it. I wanted to call us back to the centrality of the love of Christ. Uh, the church at Ephesus is a great example for us. God started to work with 12 guys. It grew and it grew and it took off. A couple generations later, they had persisted. They were still in the trenches. They were still commendable in that way. But somewhere along the way, in the busyness of life, in the rush of life, in the the length of each year and in the election after election and then the news cycle after news cycle, something happened. And they didn't abandon the faith. And they didn't become apostates, but they, they lost the fire. They lost their love. And I think the only thing the only thing that is a threat to this body of believers is that. I don't think the government is a threat to this body of believers. I don't think the ideas of this age are a threat, an existential threat to this body of believers. There will be obstacles, there will be trials. The only thing that will bring everything here to a screeching halt is if we abandon our first love. And if we start to deprioritize the centrality of love in everything that we do. So, it's not a new thing. Hopefully, it's not a new teaching. Um, but that is really the essence of what I think God wants to speak to us here this weekend. And you see how love works through everything that we've discussed up till now. You could respond to any one of those teachings in a way that doesn't emphasize love. In a way that isn't in love. I mean, you can go get all heady about Carl Truman's lecture and go geek out all you want. But do you love the Lord Jesus? And is that what's driving you to shed light on the darkness around you? Amen? How do we respond, Chad? <laughs> I'd like to hear, I, I know the spirit of, of testimony has really been alive and well this weekend. Anybody have any just initial 
response that anything that you want to just shout out there uh, before we move on Maybe the only thing we can do is sing, right? Sometimes you can't talk. You just got to sing. Let's stand together. Let's just uh, begin to worship God together and respond to, respond to the way in which he has poured out his love into our hearts. Holy God. Gracious Father. Gracious Father, faithful Son of God, Jesus, we remember your words. We remember your life. We remember the shape of your life. You were obedient to the Father to the point of death on a cross. Before that, you left heaven. You laid aside your glory and you took on flesh. And you entered a world that we had completely ruined. And you became part of it, Lord. Because you loved us. Because you loved your creation. Because you loved your people. And Lord, behind your faithfulness, behind your righteousness, behind your justice is love. God, if Paul had to pray to a group of people who were seeing revival break out in their city, if he had to pray that they would grasp this love, Lord, how much do we need to press in and grasp this love? To understand it. Father, we don't want to stop short. We don't want to stop short of what you're calling us to know of your love. Lord, if we feel like we've understood it, well, we have sold you short. It surpasses knowledge. Lord, I pray that your love would consume our lives. Lord, that it would consume our lives in a way that causes us to do mighty works that display your glory. Out of love, Lord, not out of a desire to experience the supernatural, but out of a desire to display your love into the earth. So that the amazing power of your love would be manifest, God. Hallelujah.
Lord, this year, I pray that we could, that we could deepen. That you would take us deeper. Lord, I pray for the, the believers in this room who have believed the longest. That they would go deeper. That they would know you more. That they would love more like you. Bless you, Lord. You are infinite, God. There is no bottom to your love. There is no end to it. And we will, we will forever be plumbing its depths. So, Lord, how could we ever grow stale? How could we ever grow complacent? How could we ever establish routines and set the cruise control? Wake us up, Lord. Set our hearts on fire. Hallelujah.